This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome to our eighth installment in Martial Matters of the Seminole Wars. In this series, we've explored military operations and the weapons and organization the U.S. Army used to wage them in the Seminole Wars. We've also examined the militia component and the meaning of the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution as regards keeping and bearing arms, and why the uninfringed keeping and bearing of arms is an individual right fundamental to the ability for a militia to defend the security of a free state. In this episode, Jesse Marshall returns one more time. He'll explain in detail one more aspect of the Second Amendment, the purpose of a militia being well-regulated, and what exactly well-regulated entails at the federal, state, and individual levels. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. How does the term well-regulated fit into the overall Second Amendment, and why is that important? The Second Amendment references the well-regulated militia's necessity to the security of a free state, and also the right to keep and bear arms being uninfringible. What we can see from that reference is that where a free state has a lack of security, we can obviously discern from that that the militia of that free state is not well-regulated. But we can also see that the security of the free state is insecure where the right to keep and bear arms has been infringed upon for various reasons. In the full wording of the Second Amendment, the notion of a free state comes in center stage. What does that reflect? It's like a thermometer because, again, it places in the center the security of the free state, and it's sitting between the well-regulated militia and the, the public's right to keep and bear arms. What it's telling us is that where the free state security is in question or where there is no security, that it lets us know that the militia of that free state either is not well-regulated or that the right to keep and bear arms generally has been infringed. How does this understanding fit with our historical experience from during the revolution? Going back to the revolution, we can see the examples of this from the conquest of South Carolina and Georgia by the British. The British then reorganized the militia of those royal colonies and then commenced to attempt the disarmament of those persons who would not resubmit to royal authority and so forth. So we have the partisan warfare in the southern states during the late Revolutionary War period. With the different levels of authority that come with federalism and with different interpretations, what did Congress intend when it used the phrase well-regulated militia? The Second Amendment to the Constitution notices that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of the free state. Well-regulated being a compound word, well, and hyphen, and regulated. We can look at Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language from the 18th century. We can see well references something springing forth therefrom, something positive, regular, regulated, as in the Latin regularis, meaning agreeable to rule or consistent with prescribed modes, as in government by, you know, irregulation. If we look at geometry, a regular body is described as a solid whose surface is composed of regular and equal figures. 
So when we talk about a regular body or a regulated body, in terms of uh, military discipline, we can see that this is literally a geometric system. The troops are formed into battle lines, two or three deep, generally two deep. And then when they go through their evolutions and being disciplined, it's in a systematic order of, you know, right wheels, left wheels, etc., backward wheels, subdivisions of the line breaking into column. It's all very geometric. What limitations does the Constitution put on the federal government? The United States only governs which militia are subsequently called forth into federal service. Consequently, the militia generally, the arms, the organization, and the discipline that is provided for by Congress, it is up to the states to establish these modes among their own militia. Why was regulation important at the federal level and among the several states? If the states regulate their militia in a mode that is, be it however so efficient, is not in conformity with the modes of the militia of the other states, then a confusion would result. This was made evident during the revolution when the 13 various states had 13 various systems of militia. And consequently, when the militia was drawn from any given state to act with the American army, there would be a certain amount of confusion. So from the establishment of the Constitution, the states were put on notice that their militia would be subjected to a uniform mode of arms, organization, and discipline, so that when the militia of any given state were to be employed by the federal government, they could act seamlessly, not only with federal troops, but also with militia from other states. There wouldn't be any confusion regarding the company, battalion, regimental organization, brigade organization, nor would there be confusion relative to the words of command and the particular evolutions or tactics that were expected to be enacted. In this, we can see that this is a very federal issue because the militia as a federal force is under the authority of its governor as commander-in-chief until it's not. And when it's not, it's been called forth into federal service, during which period of time the president of the United States would be their commander-in-chief. So while the federal government would provide for the requisite arms, organization, and discipline, it was up to the states to bring their militia up to that mark. Jesse, when it comes to well-regulating the militia, what did the federal law of 1792 require from the federal government and state government's point of view? The federal law of 1792 gives states the very basic system of organization. It was up to each state to determine exactly how it was going to bring its militia up to those standards. So most states would have particular laws relative to how regimental districts would be formed. For example, some states would have a single regiment of militia in each county. Some would have several regiments in a county, depending on the population. The companies were technically be somewhat less than 100 men. So any given district with about 70 to 100 men would usually be allotted a company beat or district each battalion of five companies would have a battalion district, which would have enough personnel to form the five internal companies. Because of the necessity 
of the distinctions between various localities, whether they were rural or whether they were cities, it was necessary to alter the various laws of organizations. Again, for example, a very populous district might have a couple of regiments or a whole brigade in one county, whereas many of the more rural districts might struggle to even form a single company in a county. But the federal government didn't care about that. As long as when the various units were organized, they were organized according to the uniform rule established by the Act of 1792. As far as the regulation of the militia went, again, it was a state function. In 1840, militia law treatise published in Massachusetts, edited by uh, Mr. Dearborn, noted that the Constitution did not give the federal government authority to regulate the militia. This was to be done essentially by the states or even by the people where necessary, were not otherwise allowed for by law. But the federal government had the authority to govern the militia that was in federal service. And this was understood in the early republic to refer to the rules and articles of war. So it was customary to recognize that militia in federal service, if not subject to U.S. Army regulations, which they were not, they were subject to the rules and articles of war, which were the basic modes of military justice reference to the various principal military crimes, you know, falling asleep on guard duty and things of that nature. And it was understood by the 1830s that between the Act of 1792 and the rules and articles of war to which the militia and federal service were subject, all necessary laws were in place at the federal level to allow for a well-regulated militia within the several states. How did the American Revolution inform our understanding of what's needed for a well-regulated militia? The Revolution, if you had the militia of Virginia employing a particular system of tactics and drill with particular commands, and then the, say, the Massachusetts militia was using Pickering's discipline for militia training, two brigades of militia, one from each of these states, find themselves placed together under a single division commander in the field. The difficulty then becomes the division commander would literally have to give two different sets of commands in order for the brigades to know what they're supposed to be doing. So again, establishing a uniform militia, which is actually the title of the 1792 federal law, establishing through the constitutional power of Congress to provide for the arms, organization, and discipline of the militia. The 1792 law provided for those things so that there was a federal standard. But again, it was up to the states themselves to determine the modes of bringing their militia up to that standard and or establishing standards beyond what the federal law required. There were some states that included uniforms among the militia generally. Some states wanted all rifle companies, for example, to wear hunting shirts or things of that nature. The federal law only required militia, cavalry, and artillery companies to wear uniforms. But you'll find in various states a requirement that any light infantry, riflemen, and grenadier companies also wear uniforms. Well, that wasn't a federal standard. That would have been within the individual state, for example. We've talked about the 1792 Militia Act. What were President Washington's ideas for the law? President Washington felt that the 1792 Uniform Militia Act 
could have gone further. He actually approved of the plan by Secretary of War Knox, which was somewhat more complete than the law that was actually passed, although it's essentially the same. One of the modes that Washington wanted to enact in the Knox plan was that in lieu of a regular army entirely, a certain portion of the militia of each state, namely the young men between the ages of 18 and 21, would form a select corps. Did Washington's select corps anticipate the need for volunteers to primarily man its ranks? Washington's select corps system was not based on volunteerism. Washington's plan didn't care about volunteers at all. It was going to select the most able-bodied for this select corps. Washington's select corps was not to be distinct from the militia generally. In any given district, all the men of 18 to 45 years would form a given company within their company district. Washington's initial interest was that all of the 18 to 21-year-olds within each company would be separately liable to one month of active federal duty in barracks or garrison, and they would be provided with federal weapons, and they would essentially be U.S. garrison soldiers for one month a year, in which they would be perfected in the drill and discipline of the Army. At which point, outside of that one month, they would be back with their district militia company and they would drill with it. And, of course, they would have the advantage of having been heavily drilled during their period of active federal service. So they would not be distinct from the common mass of the militia. It was simply their age. The concern of the Federalists, however, that John Adams mentioned in the 1820s was a select militia, namely one which would replace the militia generally. In other words, the discharge of all but a very small portion of the militia from any legal requirements or particular duty that would essentially transpired by the 1850s. Regardless of suitability, it was persons that volunteered to join the uniformed militia corps that formed the bulk of the uniformed militia. What did this do to the periodic mustering of the militia? The bulk of the militia by then were not drilling, not training, because to a great degree, the powers that be in the political interests had advertised to the general public that if you elect us, we will relieve you of this particular burden or duty. At the same time, the states still had to provide for the militia as required by law, and so relied upon the militia volunteer companies to fill that role. And by pointing out how well-uniformed and disciplined and well-trained they were, no one at the federal level could complain about that. The difficulty was the intent of the 1792 law was that the entirety of the population at least be given the rudimentary instruction and organization and discipline that the law required. But that increasingly fell out of favor by the 1850s. There are multiple ways to ensure a well-regulated militia. It doesn't just come from the federal government's oversight. Well, we have the example of, again, the ratification of the Constitution the concern that if the federal government did not apply the correct provisions for arms, organization, and discipline, what would become of a well-regulated militia? Well, the states, of course, would then provide for any deficiencies in the laws of the United States. And then, of course, we have, I believe that what your question is getting at is if the states themselves do not, by law, regulate the militia, well, then who does? 
and that would leave it to the people to regulate the militia. And I suppose that considering something like 20 million semi-automatic military caliber sporting arms are said to be generally in the possession of the general public these days, there would be a case in point where a large portion of the unorganized militia has gone out of its way within its personal rights to keep and bear arms, the individual persons, to procure military caliber weapons in case at some point the state or the federal laws would apply organization to that portion of the militia to which they may belong. We can see this also from the early republic. In rural districts where the militia laws, particularly on the Indian frontiers, the militia laws generally classified and required the average militia to muster and train and arm themselves as common infantry with smoothboard guns and bayonets uh, where they would be required. The intent being that the overwhelming bulk of the militia would be trained in basic infantry tactics. However, on the Indian frontiers, it was well known that Indian fighting was purely best initiated by men well-trained in light infantry and rifle tactics, particularly. So that while the militia laws of the early republic only saw fit to train about one-fifth of the infantry as light infantry or riflemen, in other words, one company per battalion, on the frontiers, it was wiser that the individual militiamen of every company, including the line companies, be familiar with light infantry and rifle tactics. And so while the law didn't provide for that, the individual frontier citizen would become familiar with these modes through common hunting and shooting at marks and things of that nature. So there's a case in point where a large proportion of the people who are subject to basic infantry instruction and arms were willing through their hobbies of hunting social gatherings and shooting at marks to become marksmen and demonstrate the skills necessary for light infantry and rifle tactics in spite of the laws. How was this evident in the Florida militia? The Florida militia in the 1830s did an enormous amount of active service in scouting, patrolling, skirmishing. They partook in several of the battles of the Second Seminole War at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, the portion of Colonel Warren's Florida volunteers that were engaged were given a measure of praise for their discipline and gallantry. And of course, maneuvering through the swamp, they had to do so in light infantry order with the men very much scattered. It's very difficult to keep order in these occasions. But many of these Florida militiamen were now veterans of several enlistments and active duty. What toll did the Florida Wars take on the territorial militia? Throughout the Second Seminole War, there was a difficulty in keeping the Florida militia embodied as the various raids and so forth on the settlements continued. A large proportion of Florida's frontier population abandoned the frontier and moved back into Georgia or Alabama. There was the hope to retain a core of the settlements, and so from 1836 on, the U.S. government provided federal rations and food and to many of the citizens in the counties adjacent to the seat of war, considering that frequently many of the men in these counties were not only subject to periodic calling forth by the territory or even the U.S. government for active military duty, but even on their day-to-day, they were patrolling and so forth so that 
it's very difficult to keep up their farms in the state of war and violence that was ongoing. So the federal government provided rations and food to a lot of these people, particularly out of Black Creek, the U.S. Army's depot there. It was hoped that this provision would prevent the total depopulation of the northern counties of Florida, and to a certain extent that worked. It was a strange turn of events for settlers to be wary of Seminole attacks, when in fact it was the Seminole who needed to be wary of settler or army or militia attacks. How was it that they considered the Seminoles to be outlaws? We would notice that under the provisions of the federal treaty with the Florida tribes of Indians, the Paines Creek and subsequent Fort Gibson Treaty, which the federal government claimed by which the Seminole had officially traded their eastern Florida reservation lands for lands in the west, the Seminole consequently were officially to the United States government outlaws, those that were resisting removal. U.S. Army officers, of course, like Ethan Allen Hitchcock and others, shared their opinion that the Seminoles' rights had been abused and there had been confusion and there were questions about the validity of the treaties. But unfortunately, once the Senate of the United States had ratified those treaties, they were given the force of law so far as the federal government was concerned. But you will notice that the territory of Florida, which again is also under federal authority to a certain extent, for example, the governor was appointed by the U.S. government, wasn't elected by the people of Florida. Even the territorial laws were subject to Congress's approval. If the territory passed an act that the Congress of the United States didn't like, then Congress had the authority to veto or overrule it. Considering that Florida was territory of the United States, it accepted the United States government's claim under the treaties of Paines Creek and Fort Gibson that there was no lawful Seminole Aboriginal land rights remaining in Florida. And thus the intent was the entire removal of all those that were recognized as Florida Indians, a.k.a. Seminole, to relocate them to the West in conformity with those treaties you'll see that Florida immediately redrew its maps to incorporate the former Seminole Reservation into the counties. But again, there was the Great War prevented any large-scale settlement of the former Seminole National Boundary until the 1840s in the Armed Occupation Act. So the people in Florida were armed, and they could man a militia, but that didn't mean they were competent as militiamen, with all that goes along with it. In 1840, when a Florida militia brigade was fully organized under General Lee Reed, he complained that he had found that even though many of the men had been in service for practically years from one enlistment to another, almost none of them were familiar at all with the common lawful militia tactics, in other words, Scott's tactics. And so he asked for copies of Cooper's tactics, which was a militia abstract of Scott's system of 1835. He asked for some copies of this to distribute to the captains so that their companies could be brought up to the legal standards. So there's a case in point. Many of these Florida troops had been in active service for years, again, acting as light infantry and riflemen, but without any formal instruction. What they did is they applied the very rudiments of military discipline to their already well-understood modes of hunting marksmanship from frontier life generally. Congress did weigh in by providing means to discipline the militia. If we recall from the Militia Clause, the Congress 
among its few powers over the militia is to provide for the discipline of the militia. In other words, which discipline it was to employ from 1792 was to employ the regulations for the infantry of the United States by Baron von Steuben from 1779. And, and after 1820, Congressional Act signed into law provided that the militia would use the same discipline as employed by the U.S. Army. Why did militia instruction using the U.S. Army's manuals have a deleterious effect upon those mustered to receive them? One of the unfortunate realities is that establishing the system of discipline used by the regular army in May 1820 served rather to demoralize the militia generally because regular troops themselves struggled to master these volumes, particularly penned by General Scott. But when the militia now had to drill by them for many decades, they'd gotten used to von Steigen's system, which is a very simple system that was designed for men that were not professional soldiers. And so it was probably the most suitable militia drill. It does have some little bit of military minutiae in there, particularly forming a company by height, which can be a little confusing when you read it. Not so confusing in practice, but without a diagram in the volume to explain, it really almost required a veteran to recognize exactly what's being described there. Scott's systems actually got simpler. The 1835 system itself is not all that difficult. And Scott was aware that the militia had to use the systems legally. And so as he modified them by 1835, he produced it in three volumes for the company, battalion, and higher levels with the intent that anyone that required it, only the company volume is generally what militia officers would require. They could just buy the one company volume, etc. Regardless, the people have felt humbugged about the whole thing. And it's in the 1820s and 30s that we see these references to the Militia captain would just stand there. He would open the book of tactics, and while the men were standing at attention, he would read the drill, but nobody knew what it meant. It almost became a laughing stock. And even where the militia did their utmost to fulfill their duty, because the drills were infrequent, they were always going to be clumsy compared to regular troops. And then we see the inevitable political consequence of a certain class of politicians that offered to relieve the public of their militia duty. And the same group would frequently contrast the militia's clumsy drills with regular troops. As John Taylor of Caroline had mentioned in the early 1800s, it certainly was a mistake to compare the militia to troops because they were not troops. But you will see frequent references to well, the militia doesn't drill very well, so the regulars drill much better than them. Of course they do. The regulars drill every day. The militia only drills a few times a year. So the obvious answer was that the militia should have a simple drill system that's uniform, like von Steibens. But instead, they were saddled with increasingly complex systems that even regular troops on the frontier struggled to master. What is the distinction between mustering with a weapon and owning or possessing one? We know from the period examples and references, while the federal law required each man to muster with his militia with a weapon, it doesn't necessarily state that you have to own or possess one. Whereas under the Armed Occupation Act, it was obviously suggested by the title Armed Occupation that you would be capable of defending your claim. Exactly how many armed occupationists were 
well-armed, I'm not aware. Is it possible some of them were entirely unarmed? Yes, because I'm not aware that there was a outside of the militia system generally requiring you to be armed. I don't know that there was a specific inspection to see that a fellow was armed in order to place his claim. In 1840, 41, 42, the U.S. Army was supplying muskets to all the white and black men in East Florida, along with their rations, muskets and ammunition, in order to, again, keep people from leaving. They didn't have to, but it was considered a necessity because as much as we will read about the disorders that may have occurred between U.S. Army and Florida militia authorities, the reality was that if the Florida militia abandoned the district entirely, in other words, if a county was totally depopulated and had no militia of any kind, that meant obviously the U.S. military had to provide the entire security in that particular county, and that was a great difficulty. In that period, keeping and bearing arms was not an issue. There wasn't any specific effort to disarm any part of the general population that that composed the militia itself, which was largely universal, but also the people generally. The federal law included all the free white men 18 to 45 in the federal militia system, The various states were free to include in the militia anyone other than that within their state militia. Some states, on certain occasions, allowed free Negroes in the militia. I think North Carolina up through the 1830s. Some states had free Negroes enroll with the militia for duty as pioneers with their local companies, musicians, etc., without arms. And some states allowed for men over 45 to serve in militia companies or companies of volunteer exempts, so-called men exempt from the federal militia laws, but who are willing or interested in doing militia duty were allowed to do so in some states. And there were occasions where the United States employed companies of exempts during the War of 1812 as U.S. volunteers. How was this issue addressed in the territory of Florida? In Florida during the 1830s, this was the case as well. Territory of Florida formed companies of exempts, uh, particularly at Jacksonville and St. Augustine. Men over 45 who were not subject to the militia laws generally, but who formed volunteer companies that the territory subsequently accepted as a component of their militia. And the St. Augustine exempts particularly did several terms of duty as U.S. volunteers in federal service. In fact, one of the men in the St. Augustine Corps of Exempts was a former Private John Thomas of the 2nd Artillery Regiment, a veteran of Major Dade's battle and survivor shortly after his discharge for disability at St. Augustine in mid-1837. He enrolled with the St. Augustine Corps of Exempts for a period of active federal duty, during which he died of disease. But the optimum case was for the militia units brought into federal service to have the arms that were provided for by the laws of Congress, namely smoothboard guns or muskets, firelocks, that were capable of firing balls of 18 to the pound, which was roughly 69 caliber. Consequently, the federal government would have no difficulty providing ammunition for them. As was frequently the case, many of the militia, of course, did not have even a smoothboard gun that was of that particular caliber. By the 1830s, the preference was that when brought into federal service, 
federal weapons from various arsenals would be provided to the nationalized militia or the volunteer corps derived from the militia. And then when their service ended, they would turn them back into the federal government and the unit that took their place would then take up those same weapons. There were occasions where militia companies had to be organized rapidly and they formed up with whatever arms and whatever condition men happened to have. This, of course, made it difficult for the military ordnance men of the United States, for example, to provide for their ammunition. But shotguns being common, we see from some quartermaster references in the 1830s that the United States government subsidized the purchase of bags of buckshot that could be distributed among some of the Florida militia companies because many of the common Floridians just had simple shotguns or single or double-barreled fouling pieces capable at least of firing buckshot. There was the occasion in the 1820s, there was a company that wanted to form a volunteer uniform company in North Florida. And they wrote a letter to the governor of territory noting they had adopted a simple infantry uniform, but that their guns were various. And because of the variety of guns, it was very difficult for them to perfect the system of tactics provided for by law, namely Scott's system, which is an infantry system intended for use with a long-barreled musket and a bayonet. So these folks asked if the territory could provide them with muskets. Territory could not provide them muskets. Territory had none to give. Also, there was confusion. They thought that the federal government would provide the muskets. That's not what the federal government did. The federal government only provided muskets to the militia in federal service. Prior to that, it was up to the militia company itself to either individually or as a group purchase muskets if they so wanted to arm themselves. But again, it's a case where the the federal government provided only a limited quantity of arms per year to each state based on the number of enrolled militia. But it wasn't enough to, by any means, completely equip the entirety of the roughly two million militiamen in the United States. For example, the territory of Florida was only due about nine muskets a year under the federal post-1808 distribution of arms to the militia generally. And when these arms were distributed to the states by the federal government, the states had to decide what to do with them. Some states stuck them in arsenals. Some states distributed them to the uniformed volunteer companies that were probably more likely to have been able to account for them carefully. It's important to recognize that the point of the system of discipline was that even if a militia company in a rural district drilled, and even if the men of that company didn't have a single military musket or bayonet, The intent was that they drilled so that even if they just had sticks and corn stalks, they would be familiar with the manual of arms. If they were called forth to federal duty and muskets were provided for them, then they they should theoretically have some vague understanding of how, how the manual of arms functioned and so forth. I want to mention, by the way, before we move on, it sounds somewhat ridiculous, but it's not been that different. Just before World War II, there were some National Guard formations that drilled with wooden cannons and machine guns for lack of actual ones. The important point being that they drilled with them so that when the requisite weapons were available by whatever means, that the men knew how to use them. And that was actually the intent. What were some problems with the assembly and mustering of the state militia? We read of the early republic, a lot of complaints at various militia companies, even with the federal law requiring the citizenry to muster with weapons, it wasn't 
infrequently the case that men didn't have a gun would show up for muster. They would have a stick or a broom, and they'd go through the motions. Technically, if one showed up without a gun, he would be subject to a fine. But that would, of course, be up to the officers to enforce. And it was not infrequently the case that the people would elect captains, particularly who they knew would not enforce the fines. That's not to be unexpected. It was customary that the militia companies would elect their own officers. Under what entity's authority was this done? The uniform militia system of the 1792 law, and among the states generally, the period of service differed by states. There was a relatively high turnover in officers, especially where some officers were more strict about enforcing the drills and so forth. There are occasions referenced, for example, in Georgia after the War of 1812, a particular young man that had done a little active duty during the war had developed a taste for drill. And because he actually understood it, he was elected a militia captain. Unfortunately, instead of just using his skill level to bring his militia to their basic legal standard, his habit was to drill the poor fellows to death. And so, of course, he was unelected as soon as possible. (laughs) In the Florida Territory, how difficult was it for a county to muster militiamen? Florida, even before the Second Seminole War broke out in 1835, was very, very sparsely populated. And it's very unlikely any of the counties were really able to form an entire regiment of several hundred men. The reality was that most of the counties, at best, could form maybe a small battalion, two or three hundred. But when the war broke out and large numbers of the people left, most of the counties found great difficulty in forming single companies at a time. And so that led to a certain disorganization among the militia. You'll notice that perusing, for example, the list of the hundreds of various units of Florida militia and volunteers that were mustered in the United States service between 1835 and 42, it would appear that at least half of these units were volunteer units. You'll see references to 9th Florida Militia, 8th Florida Militia. This would be a case in which the existing organization was brought directly into federal service, such as it was within whatever state of organization it was able to present for the active duty. But you'll also see that where some counties, especially in East Florida, where the population was reduced in the emergency of the war, the individual counties had found it impossible to form units that even approached an efficient strength. So instead of doing so, they just formed volunteer units where men from different counties would form a single company, for example. Colonel Warren's 1st Regiment of Florida Volunteers, which remustered several times over three or four years, is a case in point. That particular regiment was composed of men from several counties that came together to form a regimental organization. But because it was not a militia organization, it was technically a volunteer regiment in U.S. service composed of militiamen from those various counties. Did this make the call-up of state militia obsolete? It doesn't mean that power doesn't exist. They haven't seen fit to do it. It doesn't mean they can't. Even in the early republic, the president of the United States had the legal power under the Insurrection Acts of the 1790s president did not have to consult with a governor to call forth militia 
from any militia into federal service. The president, within that law, within his provisions, had the power to call forth any militia unit throughout the country for certain purposes. In other words, if there was a particular insurrection in southern Illinois in, say, 1830 or something, the president, if he saw fit, he could call forth the local regiment or brigade or however that militia unit was organized. Presidents came to prefer calling up volunteers as opposed to militia. Tell us about this. What you'll increasingly see by the 1830s, the War Department under Jackson passed general orders to prefer volunteer forces over militia because if the president called forth a specific regiment of Alabama militia, there would be a certain number of the men that would not muster with it. Instead of 750 men, it would show up with a 300. In lieu of that, the volunteer system was preferred by Jackson because he could tell the governor, I need a full regiment of Alabama volunteers. And the governor would then call on certain brigades of the militia to provide a quota of men or, you know, form a company. And if the men didn't volunteer for that duty, they would draft so that they would come up with that 750 men. They would organize a brand new unit as a U.S. volunteer unit. And it would be at full strength. So the Jacksonian system preferred that over the organizing the militia to its utmost potential. Who comprised the volunteer units? The uniform militia volunteers generally were people that A, didn't care to serve in a district militia company. B, were willing to uniform and outfit themselves, pay a tailor to make them a uniform to match their compatriots. Further, they usually were people who looked at the drills as sort of a hobby, so that instead of simply drilling four times a year, it wasn't unknown for these various militia volunteer companies to muster once a month, or maybe even once a week in some cases, depending on the interest of the members. And the result was by the 1850s, there were some uniform militia volunteer companies that probably were as well drilled as regular troops, at least those on the frontiers. And to a certain extent, the armies of the war between the states in 1861 were initially organized by the congregation of hundreds and hundreds of these uniformed militia companies, north and south. What was the idea behind this concept of a sedentary militia? In early 1840, when Reed's Florida Militia Brigade was organized, Several of the companies were referred to by the authorities as sedentary militia. This was a theory that was being developed by former Secretary of War Poinsett. He wanted to reorganize the militia system of the United States, borrowing to a certain degree from the Mexican and Spanish systems. I won't go into the details, but among them was a reference to a sedentary militia force versus an active militia force. And borrowing from this plan, which was never adopted by law, the authorities in the formation of Reed's Brigade saw fit to occasionally refer to several of the companies as sedentary militia, namely that the men were in active federal service, but were actually home in federal service. In other words, the defense of their own homes was a part of their official federal duty. This was offensive to some in Congress who claimed that there was no provision for such militia. They haven't done active duty in the field, and they shouldn't be paid. And so there was difficulty and argument in Congress over whether 
these sedentary companies had actually performed any actual active service. Their pay was hung up in Congress for some years, not until, I believe, after Florida statehood in 1845, were these arrears of pay worked out. How easy or not was it to tell the difference between volunteers and militiamen? It's a good rule of thumb to understand in the period that whenever the War Department accepted for federal service a group of militiamen in a unit other than those composed of their state or territorial militia, that they were accepted as generally as a volunteer unit in federal service. The distinction between volunteers and militia is that the volunteers may have been subject to the militia laws generally up to the point of their muster into federal service. But as federal troops, the volunteers were technically no longer militia during their actives. They were not national militia. They were volunteers. Now, the confusion between the two is partly purposeful because the laws of the United States allow that volunteer troops essentially were organized identically to militia in terms of the organization of the units, the number of officers, NCOs, etc., but also they elected their officers. They were allowed to elect their officers, just like militia generally, and they didn't wear any uniforms. There was no requirement for them to uniform. And consequently, you will often see that there was no distinction made between the volunteers and the militia. For example, most of the militiamen that served from several states in General Scott's campaign in 1836 in Florida they were actually in U.S. volunteer units serving a three-month term of enlistment. But their units, generally, the battalions, etc., and regiments, these were not militia regiments. These were newly formed organizations for the federal volunteer service. But because they were derived from the militia and they were composed of militia men to the point of their muster as federal volunteers, it was customary for the regular Army officers to just continue to refer to them as militia. But they were, in fact, federal troops in that capacity. Tell us about the disparate public images of the militia. Militia is either portrayed as an extraordinarily well-equipped, uniformed, and elite force, or as a bumbling group of idiots. Which is it? That's the nature of politics of the time. The obvious is that the majority of the militia were well in between those two extremes. But when you consider there were 2 million enrolled militia in 1840, there's roughly 100 goes into a million 10,000 times. If there's 2 million enrolled militia, that means there's at least 20,000 individual militia companies in the United States of roughly 100 men each. And so out of those 20,000 militia companies, some of them are going to be very badly organized and some of them are going to be well organized. When you're talking about 20,000 different companies, 2 million militiamen, roughly 100 men per company, roughly. It's not quite 100. It was 64 privates and 8 NCOs. But with the officers and musicians, about 75, 77 men. But let's just even it up to 100 men. And if you got 2 million enrolled men, that would be the equivalent of about 20,000 individual companies. With such a vast number of potential militia companies... How did the federal government know how many militia were enrolled? Each year, the adjutant generals of each state were supposed to forward a general census of the number of enrolled militia in each state. Since most states also pass laws, statutes that define the regimental and brigade and division organization of their militia, it wasn't that difficult for the 
War Department of the United States to figure out what unit is where. For example, in the territory of Florida, territorial law established the regiments by counties so that, for example, if there was an issue in Alachua County that comprised the 6th Regiment of Florida Militia, so President Jackson's He could have called forth the 6th Regiment of Florida Militia without even the governor's permission. This was obviously unpopular politically, and for the most part, the presidents have not employed that particular power. But it doesn't mean that power doesn't exist. Florida as a U.S. territory differed somewhat from those that were actually states admitted to the Union. How was this so? Being a territory, Florida was subject to the laws of Congress. Congress had a, essentially a, like a veto power over the laws of the territory of Florida, for example. The authority of the territorial government did not derive from a state constitution because there was no state and no state constitution. It derived from the organization of the territory of Florida by U.S. law. There was a distinction there. And so in a sense, as one commentator noted in the early republic, the militia of a territory is something like a federal militia in the sense that it's not part of a state. So the territory of Florida didn't have the same kind of power over its militia, say, that a state did, like the state of Georgia over it. The intent was that the militia was the bulwark of defense in the region. We've got to remember, generally, there are very few police forces in the United States. There was a general repugnance to the idea of the public being forced to purchase back its own security through excessive taxation and so forth. And the intent was that the public, if the public didn't want to do that, then they needed to arm themselves and they needed to do their duty as militiamen where it was required in order to prevent that sort of system. More so, as is usually referenced, that if the public didn't want to pay for a regular army, then the public needed to prepare a portion at least of the militia to act in lieu of regular troops when required. But the territory of Florida, the intention was that the territory eventually become a state. And in fact, it was in late 1838 that the territorial authorities had a constitutional convention and adopted essentially the framework of constitutional government for the state of Florida. It wasn't until 1845 that Florida actually acquired that statehood, but it had laid out its constitutional system of governance in 1838-39. The militia did not muster and train very often. So what did militia men who wanted more training do? One of the results was that the volunteer militia corps, most states allowed for men that didn't want to serve in their district beat militia company, they could join a volunteer company. The requirement was that they would outfit themselves in a uniform. The uniforms of these volunteer companies were not regulated, and consequently, they were all relatively unique. And so throughout the country, you had hundreds, if not thousands, of these volunteer companies formed by the laws of their states. In some states, the intent was that the light infantry company attached to each militia battalion would be a uniformed volunteer company. Some states never bothered to go that far. Some states did. But by the 1850s, many of the states were not enforcing the laws relative to the militia generally and were beginning to consider their militia only the uniform volunteer militia companies. This is particularly after 1820, after the Federalists lost power in the United States. 
the Federalists like uh, John Adams noted in the early 1820s that so long as the militia system was universal then American freedom was safe, but subjected to a select militia like is found in Europe and insecurity would be the result. On the topic of insecurity, how does the American militia system help thwart usurpation of authority by bad government? Addressing the well-regulated militia system, the term is not used frequently any longer, but one of the worst systems of government in human history is called ocalocracy. It's frequently confused with democracy. It can be developed out of democracy, but in an ocalocracy, the you could call it the, in fact, it was referred to as the worst system of human government by some political commentators of centuries past. The term generally is not used in the last couple hundred years, but when it has been, it's often referred to as mobocracy. And this would be a case where a mob or a group of people usurp the power or are allowed to usurp it by the powers that be, who then once this mob usurps that power, the powers that be then take it from the mob and employ it. Worst excesses of the French Revolution would be somewhat akin. The militia system in the United States was designed to prevent any kind of ocalocratic or mobocratic excesses. How? By universally placing the individual citizenry in a position that it's up to them to defend their own rights. When we see the Second Amendment's reference to the security of a free state between the clauses relative to a well-regulated militia and that of the right of the people generally to keep and bear arms, one of the principal points of that is that an ocalocratic or mobocratic system would be unable to, A, threaten the security of the free state, or particularly to usurp enough power that they would sell to the people their security. On that serious and sobering thought, we're out of time. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us for this series of Marshall Matters of the Seminole Wars. Well, we'll let you go. You have a good one. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.